Okay, uh, we did Luke 16 last time. So we are now on Luke 19. We're slowly making our way. Yeah, <laughs> to the Gospels. We've been going through the entire Bible, and it's been taking us years, <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> we haven't been reading every passage either. Okay, so Luke 19... 1 to 9, that's on page 12 for anybody who has the full document. Luke 19, 11 to 27. No, 1 to 9. Um, Peter, uh, would you read those verses for us, please? About Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Mm-hmm. Luke 19, beginning mm-hmm. in verse 1 through 9. Through 11. Oh, through 11. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zechaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore, sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zechaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zechaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Okay. Uh, Why don't we stop there? I I misspoke when I said uh, verse 11. So what does this teach us about salvation and the God of salvation? certainly concerned with what we can't see and who we can't see. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And Jesus will come to anyone who welcomes him. Mm -hmm. Especially the sinner. (laughs) I don't know that. I think that if we don't recognize that we're sinners, we're not able to welcome him, we welcome a version of him that we've concocted in our heads, possibly. Was was Zacchaeus a Jew? Yes. He was a a Jew, and that's what made him a worse sinner in the eyes of the people, because he was a tax collector. Working for Rome, such a traitor. And and tax collectors were notorious at extortion. They tended to over, overcharge and then keep the additional revenue. Uh, keep in mind, as I've, as I've mentioned, uh, the economic structure of, of the Roman, I wouldn't say the government, the Roman uh, Empire, the whole area of regions, was uh, that you had the people at the top who were the elite and the rich and the wealthy. They were a very, very small minority. But they had by about half of the wealth, uh, maybe more. 
And then you had the middle people who were the brokers and the people. And you had to have those middle people in order to you know, negotiate with the wealthy at the top. And then you had uh, the next middle people who were the, um, well, like in, in fishing, for example, you would have a, a fisherman uh, who would be overseeing the people he hired to do the fishing. He wouldn't do the fishing, but he would he would be in charge of that. So he would be the fisherman, and the, the others would just be day laborers uh, without really rank or file. And they were the peasant population. So you had these four tiers and levels of, of economic gain or loss, as the case may be. And, and the middle people got more money than, of course, the peasants got just the crumbs left over. Uh, so that's the economic scene. And the tax collectors, uh, of course, overcharged and made a profit because they were kind of the middle people in their field. Uh, and if they didn't do that, they didn't feel like they had the money they needed. Uh, and so that's the way they lived. And, of course, they were hated for this. Was, was there any evidence of a voice where is that where the Roman structure was? They didn't pay them a salary. They actually... Um, you know, kept what they could overcharge or what they could... Yeah, it was like a cut, yeah. because yeah. the evidence also suggests that this particular region under Zechaeus was very prosperous, doing very well at the time, mm-hmm. which meant Zechaeus yeah, would have been well. well off if he indeed got a cut. Yeah. Somebody must have supervised him to make sure he didn't take too much of a cut from Rome. You know, he must have had to pay Rome a certain amount. He had to pay a certain amount, but above that, above that if he, he could, could charge, charge that, he yeah. Get. yeah. Mm-hmm. Sales still works that way sometimes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we have plenty of that in our, our day. Anything else that you see here in terms of salvation? You know, that must, it's probably hard for us to grasp that, but that must have been. A huge, we read it so simply, but that was a huge uh, kind of slap in the face or something they totally didn't understand. He did something extremely radical to go home with this <laughs> tax collector everybody hated and despised and knew that he was a crook. They knew he was a crook. Yeah. And for Jesus to, to make the gospel so, you know, to take that step and take the risk of being labeled. And, and, and you notice, you notice, Jesus doesn't wait for his repentance speech and say, "Oh well, now I can come to your house." I know he doesn't. That's a good point. <laughs> he he says, "I'm coming home to, with you today." Um, and he doesn't even he, he invites himself to dinner, which is is really radical in Jesus' day. Oh, is it? In, I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, I don't think you ever invited yourself out to eat, especially with a wealthy man, and especially with a tax collector. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can read his heart. So, so uh, Jesus is, is really, he's commanding now. <laughs> Hurry up, yeah. come down. I'm going to your house for lunch. Yeah, that's such a cool thing to do. What a demonstration of mercy, though, because, you know, Scripture tells us not so much to have mercy, but to love mercy. Yeah. 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 It also shows that salvation is transformational. Because um, in mine, even though it says like that he came down gladly, another translation of that word, it literally means rejoicing. So he was yeah. like ecstatic. He was ecstatic. He, yeah. he jumped out of that tree. In, I mean, this is a, <laughs> it, it, I think your version said sycamore fig tree. 
which is different than a sycamore. We think of a sycamore tree as a tree more like the trees out there, uh, very tall and, and big branches and, and all of that. But this is a sycamore fig. It's a short, stocky little tree. So it, and, and it would have to be for a short man to climb. <laughs> so, so he jumps out of that tree, is, is kind of what I suspect. Stood right before Jesus, gives his confession speech, and leads the way home with the crowd going and starting grumbling. He provides, you know, he really acts out the gospel. He gives unconditional love and acceptance ahead of their response. I mean, that's how he... This is, this is an enactment of what we read in 15 with the prodigal son. And, and who are the older brothers in the audience? <laughs> Can anybody tell? <laughs> I think how he must have felt when Jesus said, "Today salvation is," you know, because he know he knew that he was an outcast. He was going against mm-hmm. his heritage and value system and religion and everything. And what he was doing, and, and in a way, he was eating with the pigs and uh, using that expression in a little different sense. <laughs> yeah, the, the money pig. <laughs> mm. So check out the Geneva in verse nine, uh, verse six. It says, then he came down hastily and received him joyfully. Mm-hmm. Did he hug Jesus? Yes, they did. <laughs> did he embrace him? I bet they did. Do they embrace quite a bit the, the men of that culture when you're you're meeting someone or a friend or someone you respect? Do they? How how do they interact? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm I'm you know I've been to uh, Temple Emmanuel. How many years now? Ten, I think over ten years, every year. And I can't remember if I've ever seen men hug each other. The Jews tend to be a little more reserved. And we're instructed to greet each other with a holy kiss. <laughs> and I tell you, you know, I was in one men's group and we were in Bible study and we came across that verse. And we all kind of looked at each other, and we're like, nah. And yet, it is what Scripture tells us. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's difficult to know, did they embrace? I, I just... Especially wealthy people usually keep their distance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although, Jesus had broken down all the barriers at this uh, yeah, point. Boy, yeah, boy, he just... He might have, you know, that would have been a neat scene, just like... He received him joyfully. Sounds like something happened. Touching something. I feel like in the garden, isn't that the way that when... Uh, it says, don't detain me because he was hanging on. It isn't, you know, I must go to my... Don't stop holding me because I need to... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah uh, Mary would never have let go if Jesus had not said stop. All right, let's go on to 11 to 27. Shalina. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A noble man went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. 
And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said, Do business with this until I get back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Oh, I added the faithful. Because you have been faithful to a very little thing, you will be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you were an exacting man, you take up what you do not lay down and reap where you do not sow. And he said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? And why did you not put my money in the bank? Having come I would have collected it with interest. And then he said to the bystanders, Take the amina take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has made ten minas already. I give you that. To everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. What do you learn about salvation from this? I'm going to suggest something about that last sentence because it stops us. If I don't want the creator of the universe to reign over me, what has to happen for that not to happen? If, if, if the creator of the universe already reigns over everything, including me, and I don't want him to reign over me, what has to happen? You have to end. I have to die. That's the only way he can't reign over me. So he gives them what he, they want because by rejecting the creator of the universe, the life giver, they've chosen death. And of course we can, we can talk about how he slays them. I, I think that uh, he slays them the way it says in Revelation 19 with the sword of coming out of his mouth, which represents the word. It's really important to know the character of the master. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the, you notice that those, the, the, the wicked servant who, who puts his money in a handkerchief, Luke has a handkerchief, other gospel, I think Matthew has a, uh, he puts it in the ground. Yeah. This, this, this slave has this terrible picture of the master, doesn't he? He's grasping. He takes what isn't his. Does any commentary ever expand on that or any other, other writers? Where do you get that idea that the master, you know, you know takes where he didn't reap, and you know, you know, he has really a rough, uh, negative picture of maybe he had a bad master, maybe <laughs> was a slave or something. No. Um, do we ever act that way in church during offering call? <laughs> <laughs>
God, you ask too much. It sounds like um, the prodigal son story where the son had a terrible picture of the father, mm-hmm. but the father never showed it to him. But and he got it from the older brother. And it says here that the citizens hated him, so they obviously they got mm-hmm. some kind of picture mm-hmm. from others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, which suggests that our picture of God has a direct correlation on our productivity for him. Absolutely. When I was teaching high school in my young years, I noticed there was a, and it was, it was a rough time for me. It was in the early, mid-70s, and it's a lot of turmoil among high school kids. I, 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 knew, I realized there was a direct correlation for my ability to feel love and tenderness for my students in, in comparison to my unworthiness before the, before the Lord. You know, if I'm thinking, well, these students, you know, they're, so, well, Mr. Ramon, why do we have to study this? You know, you, you know, you get this kind of high school kind of thing, you know, yeah. and you, it's so easy to get self-righteous, <laughs> but then you lose your ability to, to, to love that person, if you lose your posture. Uh, I mean, that was a revelation to me as a young Bible teacher. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. It's, there is a very practical side to, to my uh, I, uh, view of God and, and relationship I, with God. I tell you, I learned, what I learned about teaching, I learned from watching my high school professors. <laughs> I, I studied pedagogy at Thunderbird Academy. <laughs> <laughs> I studied that more than I think I studied the subject. <laughs> and I watched what worked and what didn't work. And those teachers who came in with a kind of a chip on their shoulder and, yeah. and any student that knocked at that chip, because believe me, yeah. high schoolers, they, will. they know all the buttons to push. <laughs> and, and so I watched the reactions of, of my teachers and those teachers who got upset and 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 crack down or or would whine and complain about the way they were being treated yeah. well, they, go they they lost <laughs> they just completely lost and and those teachers who just could laugh at the pranks that were pulled i remember one one professor who the students were bored in his class it was it was sheer boredom i think that drove this uh, a bunch of students in the class made it pay for airplanes. And at the end of the class period, they threw them at the teacher. You know, so all these airplanes come flying toward the teacher. And the teacher was just so wounded. Oh, how could they do that to me? Uh, I love these students. How could they treat me this way? And, and I remember thinking, you know, if he just shrugged his shoulders and laughed, it would have been a totally different response. But... Um, it is true, and it's true that, you know, uh, we, ha- we're, we were privileged my, my freshman year to have Dick Durson as our Bible teacher. And he engaged us with the Word and with God. It's all about God's character. Almost every day we ask the question, what does this tell us about God? Our class, our freshman class, became the most spirited and spiritual class on campus. We were just, we were, we had the, we were the largest class the next year, we went, moved on to another teacher who just taught us the facts and don't ask questions. And, and, and I watched my class die. 
just die. And by the end of the year, we had dwindled down. We had a bunch of students kicked out for marijuana. Uh, by the time we were seniors, we were down to 40 students <laughs> from being about 60. We had lost, in fact, as I recall, we had lost almost half the class. So, yeah, this parable, we're on Matthew 6, I mean, Luke 16. Uh, 19. I'm sorry, 19. Got my needle stuck. What this parable really teaches us is that there's a direct correspondence between uh, how I see, if I see my, ma- my master as generous, I will be generous. And if I see him stingy and grasping, I will be stingy and grasping. So all the man could think to do was to keep it safe for him. Well, I'll keep it safe for him. I won't take any risks because I might lose. It, it seems here at the same time that, I don't think this is Jesus' point of the story, but I think that um, the disciples might have hold on, held on to this image about having power in the kingdom. So like you have a servant that's in charge of much and then does well with much and so God gives him more. And so it kind of seems like that this idea keeps on um, growing in the mind of the disciples because like it's manifested at the at the road to Capernaum when they all ask Jesus where where they're gonna sit um, next to him. And so it's just interesting how he uses this example to demonstrate a different point that he uses. He doesn't, it's not, a, it's not an upside down effect, really. Yeah. It's more of a tweaking of it. So, so what is the difference between Jesus' view of the kingdom here and the disciples' view? Well, I mean, I think the disciples' view is almost like entitlement. And so they have like, like well, like I'm, I'm closest to you, so give, give me more power. And Jesus is more. And that's the way it worked in their world. Uh, you know, one of the things I didn't mention in terms of the economic scene is that um, the the wealthy elite would hone the friendships of their patrons. It's called the client. They had a client-patron relationship. So I'm sorry, they were the patrons, and they honed the relationship of their clients. The clients were the not the not necessarily the peasants, but the people like the fishermen and the and the and the farmers and, and so on. And in order to meet the obligations of being a client, they had to go to their patron's home every day before they did anything else, early in the morning, the crack of dawn, and find out what the patron wanted them to do for that day. And they had to go and do that in addition to their regular workload every day. So there was enormous, I mean, friendship, the word friend had a completely different meaning and connotation. A friend was a client who was obligated. So there was all this, this um, privilege and, and feeling I'm entitled, entitlement on the part of the, of the patrons. And there was all of this, um, I, am, I am obligated to my patrons to carry out the wishes. So, so Jesus walks into this and says, what is he saying here in, in relationship to that? 
What is it that entitles someone to five or ten cities? It's their investment. Their investment, their willingness to lose, to take a risk. That's great. A willingness to lose, to take a risk, to step out in faith. <laughs> it means that you have to believe that the person you're risking for is trustworthy and kind. He's going to allow you this. You know, he gives us a lot more freedom than that economic model you give, where it's like obligation. You got, you have to do this much plus a little bit more, and he's just saying that it's up to you guys. I'm giving you because he's trusting us. And so he who is faithful with the little things mm-hmm. then is also again faithful with much larger things. So, so the trustworthiness of the master then carries into trustworthiness in the person who's serving the master. And, and it really is, Jesus really is trusting. Uh, you behave like the God you worship. So if we, oh, I don't know if I want to ask this question. If you look at us as a, a church right now, what kind of God do we worship? It depends on where you sit in the Adventist church. It depends on your circle. It depends on which church. And it depends on which church you go to. It seems like what we focus on, what we spend our time on, reflects our picture of God. You know, the story you told and what we're struggling with, that is extremely powerful. It's just like, it's almost impossible, you know, if I'm working with a client and they have an abusive father, it is almost impossible for them to picture uh, something different. That, you know, they, they transfer that to their boss, to their husband, to their, you know. I mean, that how you view the father and spiritually how we view that stuff is, is very, very powerful. Um, I'm thinking of when I went to Mount Alice's principal, I had a, he was an LDM, he's, he's pastor, just went back into pastoring after 15 years up in uh, Tahoe, out in Winnemeyer. Um, but L came out of a rough, tumble background, and when he saw that Montana, you know, Mentality, you know, it's it's kind of like the old school stuff where this is uh, those kids, you know, you just use force and control, and the, every week he just preached the gospel, preached love and kindness. <laughs> it just it's almost like the same thing. He hammered at that, and it took about a year. You start seeing the change, and you about you know triple, quadruple that church and change the attitude. Culturally, it was very, you know, Montana was very. I remember one of my teachers, well, just, you know, just give it to those kids and we might kick a few out, but the rest of them will straighten up. It was that kind of, that kind of attitude, that kind of rough country, you know, <laughs> but to have the pastor come in and soften that congregation, it was neat by telling them, you know, by not giving in to that. It's staying with the gospel. And, and not rebuking it either. No, no, he's doing the... Taking the high road. Taking the high road. Showing love and kind of demonstrating that in his own way he interacted with it. Yeah. Well, I think we have time to go on 
to 22. Luke 22, 39 to 46. Christian, do you want to read that? And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We read this in Matthew. Matthew does not include one thing that's in Luke. So that's why we're reading this again. And that's verse 44. You all know that blood coming, uh, bloody sweat coming out of a person's forehead is a serious medical condition of intense depression. Um, I had a student one year in my doctrinal studies class where we dealt with the death of Jesus who had that condition. He asked to write his paper on the crucifixion, particularly this verse. And he wrote how he was so terribly uh, physiologically depressed. It was a physiological problem in his brain. And he was so terribly depressed that he suffered this, this condition. It's called hemitridrosis. I never can say it right. Hemitridrosis. And it is actually where the brain bleeds bleeds through uh, this area of the skin and uh, he had to be on antipsychotic drugs in order to control that and not so that he wouldn't bleed uh, imagine the intensity of anguish and, ang- and agony uh, that would cause this and this isn't physiological with Jesus this is, this is because of what what is leading him to this an extreme mental anguish? You know, he, he couldn't see. You know, when he took that on him, he couldn't see. He's choosing eternal separation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, can't even imagine that. We we can't because we rather enjoy our separation from God. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, but Jesus had always been like this with the Father. I mean, just just so close you couldn't separate them. And constantly receiving his love and his light and then to be cut off from that, separate from that. I think we're told that there was never such an asundering of the divine powers as in the death of Jesus. So, you know, we talk about the blood and how we're saved by the blood, and, uh, washed in the blood and, and sanctified by the blood. 
and we say those words and we have no clue what we're talking about. Uh, we think somehow blood does it all. But the truth is we're talking about an experience. Because if you put all the gospel writers, all four gospels, and their stories of Jesus' crucifixion, so you, you line them up and you compare them, not a single gospel writer talks about blood in, in, in terms of the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and feet, the scourging, none of that. No blood is mentioned. The, but blood is the frame of Jesus' death. If you combine, combine all the four gospels together, it is, it is the, the, you might say, bookends of that story. Because this is the first reference, the earliest one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he ever reaches the cross, he's bleeding to death, as it were. He's, he's, he's agonizing to death. He's, he's, the angel had to strengthen him or he would have died in Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. And you go to John, chapter 19. And uh, Jesus has just said, it is finished, and died. And so they decide they better take him off the cross because it's going to be the Sabbath and they don't want to break the Sabbath. So the disciples came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, verse 34, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. That's the other frame. That's the other bookend. He's died. And there's blood and water coming out of his side. What does that indicate? We usually, traditionally, it's been thought that it, it, it was evidence that Jesus died of a broken heart. He didn't die from crucifixion. So here you have the blood tied intimately to an experience. This is experiential now, not some legal record that gets stamped with my blood with with Jesus blood so that I can be forgiven. This is this is an experience that Jesus has had. The emotional agony is so great that it affects his circulatory system and his heart and his his neurological system. The whole thing is affected. So and to give his uh, you know the choice he's making is to save us or the world instead of himself. Right. So that that emotional agony is a clear message to us about what? What what does that mean for us? This is what it means to separate from the Father. This is what it means to die. This is what it means. This is the consequence of sin. Separation. Separation. This emotional trauma and agony. And everything we experience that's traumatic and emotionally agonizing and everything is, is all the part of our separation from the Father. And what has led to that separation? Well, I think one, number one thing is I just can't trust a God who's going to kill me if I don't. Somehow that doesn't bring trust. And so by Jesus' death, he takes that trauma 
that we have lived under all our lives because we believe the serpent's lie, you shall not surely die. If you're going to die, God's going to have to kill you. Sin isn't going to kill you. Sin doesn't hurt you. We believe that lie. And Jesus' death completely demolishes that lie. No, this is what happens. This is what it is. And I'm in the saving business. My father's in the saving business. Sin is in the destroying business. This is what sin does. That's why he had to be our sin bearer. That's why he had to take on our sins. See, it's experiential. It is not legal. It's real. And that's why substitution is vicarious experience rather than something removed and detached from our own experience. Yeah. Uh, it's really terrible when you think about it. You reduce that kind of love and passion and love for someone to a, a legal stamping. And, you know, yeah. and worse, what lies behind that whole perception is the concept of an angry God who has to be appeased. And nothing can be farther from the truth if you look at Jesus' death as he experiences it. So, we're going we're gonna to be probably reviewing that from time to time. Uh, we're going to come to Romans. We're going to deal with Romans. Unfortunately, you guys are graduating. One, one more year. One more year. Oh, great. <laughs> I, keep, I keep forgetting that, yeah. I think. So, why don't we look quickly at uh, verses 47 to 53. Doug, would you read those for us? 2247-53. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you portraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what he what was going on going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike him with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with sword clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. My version has in the power of darkness. Mine too. And, um, yeah, if you were a disciple and you were waiting for the kingdom, and surely any time, I mean, things are getting so critical now, it has to happen sooner, it's not going to happen at all. And here's Judas leading the way, I'm going to make it happen. And you see Jesus saying to Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And I think it's Matthew that has Jesus calling Judas friend. He calls him friend. And, and so his disciples see what's going to happen. They say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? <laughs> We're ready. Let's fight. And Jesus 
doesn't respond immediately, apparently. And so one of them, which we understand Mark, I think, to be Peter, cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. And here's Jesus picking up that ear and healing the man. That's Jesus' last act of healing before his death. And then he confronts them by saying, Have you come out against us as, as against a robber with swords and clubs? I, w- I taught every day in the temple and you didn't ever seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. What must have gone through the disciples' minds about the kingdom? Oh no, he's not going to defend himself. No, he's going to heal people we try to defend him against. How can he do this? It's, it's just totally the opposite of what they're expecting the Messiah to do. They had witnessed his power, miraculous power. So some, especially Judas, most likely believed that he would use his power. Yeah, he had, well, he had the power to feed an army endlessly. He had the power to uh, heal the wounded raise and, and raise them to de- from death. Um, we're an invincible army. Nobody can beat us. And Jesus uses his power to heal his enemies. It just, it is just the hardest thing, I think, for, I had a, I don't know if you ever knew Carson Johnson. He was, uh, used to live in efficiency apartments. He had a couple doctorates. He'd teach over for free in Europe in the summer. <laughs> and he would uh, he would go over and over and say, you know, Jesus' greatest, the, 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 it was the um, the greatness of God, or the, the highest. It's not just coronation. Not just, it's just coming down this. He would just go over that you have the, and we just can't get it. As sinful human beings, we just don't get the, the power and his, his uh, you know, we'll see him. We see it in a few humans. He, he says, you have a few, you have this characteristic of few, more women than men, he would say. <laughs> but this coming down to his servant at his. We, you know. we are conditioned from the <laughs> yeah, get-go <right>. to be... <laughs> But it, just, it is so hard to get it. It's just so, and you see the disciples struggling. They wanted the power and strength and, and society and politics and you know, countries. It, it's all, the whole world's based on that. I uh, had an interesting, intense discussion with my students in God and Human Suffering this week. I One of the questions I raised for discussion for a class period is... Uh, should we try to stop suffering? Which the obvious question is, of course. You know, we, we work at it very hard in hospitals and and in, in uh, the paramedics and and all of the rest. Um, but what about how far should we go to try to stop suffering? And I feature Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, and, uh, Martin Doblemeyer has put out an excellent documentary on him. Unfortunately, it's longer than a class period, so I ended up doing two class periods on this question. But we discussed it very vigorously, and one student was like, you have to do whatever it takes to stop this kind of person like Hitler. And the rest of the class 
with the exception of maybe a one person who sided with him, the rest of the class was like, no, that is not what we're supposed to do, no. And, and it was amazing because I've had some classes that were, everybody thought we should use violence and, and be done with it. And, Getting through it. And um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, I think it was this class because last quarter it wasn't so good. <laughs> so, so we really, really discussed it and I do find, I've had students ask me, so what would you do if you had an intruder come into your house and you had a child? Mm-hmm. I said, well, one thing I wouldn't have is a gun. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I said, but, you know, I, I think I would wrap myself around my child. Take me, not my child. Or I would try to divert the attention from my child, put, get my child to hide or something, and, and uh, take me out, but not my child. Passivism doesn't, really, doesn't set well. Total pacifism doesn't set well today's world. And our world is getting increasingly violent. So Jesus' message is getting increasingly radical as we move along. You look at the long-term influence that that life, or whether it's Gandhi or whether it's some of these others, that there is much more influence than if it was just that one generated. They won a battle or they... They controlled that country for a few years. Well, you know, we were talking about what works. And somebody said something that that just gave me the perfect thing I wanted to say. And I pointed out, you know, the resistance tried multiple times to kill Hitler. And the last one, last time they tried, the bomb took out everybody around Hitler, but not Hitler, just about. I mean, it was just, it was phenomenal. I said, so who was protecting Hitler? And, and to me, the whole lesson of, of that story is that God was protecting Hitler, and I, I know that I, probably some people would really be upset to hear me say that, but that God protected Hitler because he did not want he wanted to give us a, a living illustration that it isn't violence that can take out evil. Evil has to take out itself. And it's Hitler, ultimately, who takes Hitler's life. It isn't anybody external to him. I think that's one of the reasons that God allowed World War II and, and the six million Jews and all of that. It's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible scenario, but he allowed it. He, I mean, he could have prevented it. There, are, there were, if you, if you read about that whole scenario, there was a point, many, many points, in which the German people or, or circumstances could have led Hitler not to ever become chancellor. There was just, the, the chances of him becoming chancellor were very, very slim. There were so many opportunities for it not to happen. And yet he ended up becoming chancellor and ended up on the road that he did. But I think, I believe that God is trying to wake us up to the fact that the real evil is trying to do violence. And to do violence against violence is to suggest what makes us different from those who do violence. 
How are we not like them if we use violence against them? And so here we have an example in Luke where Jesus says, I'm going to heal the one who comes to get me. I mean, the servant of the high priest is going to be one of those who grabs Jesus or one of those who who makes sure that Jesus gets to Caiaphas, who's the high priest. And he, he talks to Judas as a friend and treats him with sadness and sorrow, but with love. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a totally upside-down picture, and he submits to being taken away. So I had another gentleman in my office who was pretty radically politically to the right. And his concern was pulling people out of the ditch from the left. And I suggest, he said, we don't have any choice but Trump. We have to go. We have to go with Trump. We have to, despite all the things that Trump can lead us into, we have to go that way because there's these only these two options. We don't have any other options. And I said, what about a third option that you find in the Book of Revelation? We have the beast and the lamb, and the followers of the lamb. And yes, it means suffering. It means the cross. But that's your third option. And I just, I think that we need to spend more time at the foot of the cross, looking at the nature of Jesus' kingdom to prepare us for what's ahead. I don't think we can sit anywhere else but at the foot of the cross and survive the days ahead into eternity. So we need to, we need to close. You don't look for righteousness at the foot of the party. <laughs> Father, we ask that you will be with us as we go from here, that we may take with us the message of the cross, the message of what you demonstrated in the closing scenes of your life. May you fill us with your love. May you make it clear the nature of your kingdom. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.